Hello, and thanks for joining us. This is the Mod Pod, your audio access pass to select articles from the September issue of Modern Optometry. Subscribe via your platform of choice and stay up to date on topics relevant to the medical model of optometry, even when you don't have time to read the print edition. In this episode, you'll hear why prompt diagnosis is important for the successful management of infectious retinitis, get tips on spotting early AMD and what to do about it, find out how coordinating vision and medical insurance can both benefit your practice and set you apart, and also appreciate why it's okay to recommend refractive surgery to your patients. Here's Joseph Allen of Buffalo Eye Clinic in Minnesota with a rundown on infectious keratitis diagnosis and management. I once heard that an astute clinician can make the right diagnosis 90% of the time based only on a thorough case history. Testing myself to find a diagnosis based on presenting symptoms and clinical data alone is one of my favorite parts of clinical care. Understanding that drifting spots in a patient's vision are more likely to be caused by vitreous floaters or a posterior vitreous detachment than by an infectious process is just playing the odds, and part of being a good doctor. With that in mind, however, it is important to remember that infectious retinal diseases, although rare, do exist. They may present with common visual symptoms, such as blurred vision or floaters, but infectious retinitis can also be present in a completely asymptomatic patient. Because there are so many potential causes for infectious retinal disease, bacterial, viral, parasitic, fungal, and tick-borne, prompt recognition of clinical signs and risk factors, along with proper testing, is necessary for successful diagnosis and management. Some causes of infectious retinitis are potentially devastating, not only because these diseases can lead to permanent vision loss, but because they are often the clinical manifestation of a systemic illness. For example, Cytomegalovirus, known as CMV retinitis, classically affects immune-compromised individuals with HIV. It is important to remember, though, that infections of the retina can affect immune-competent patients as well, such as in cases of acute retinal necrosis, cat scratch disease, and Lyme disease. A patient with retinitis often presents with complaints of ocular pain, as in acute retinal necrosis, and toxoplasmosis. Vision loss and or new floating spots in his or her vision, however, some patients remain completely asymptomatic and may show up only for a routine examination or eyeglass prescription update. Familiarity with key clinical signs and risk factors is the main driving force behind finding a proper diagnosis. My first instinct in clinic is to always examine every patient. During the examination, there are key signs you want to identify, or rule out, that could aid you in steer your diagnosis toward the cause of the retinitis. For example, nearly all forms of infectious retinal disease present with some form of uveitis. With any signs of new or worsening uveitis, a dilated examination is required to evaluate the depth of the inflammation. Retinitis may also present with simple stellate precipitates in the anterior chamber, as in acute retinal necrosis and syphilitic infections, or snowballs in the posterior segment, as in tuberculosis, Lyme, or toxocoriasis. 
Another classical finding is that of retinal necrosis, which presents with many forms of retinitis, and which can potentially lead to retinal detachment. Severe vision loss from retinal detachment is common in patients with remarkable necrosis. For example, in acute retinal necrosis, progressive outer retinal necrosis, or PORN, or CMV retinitis. Retinal hemorrhaging may also be evident and is typical of CMV retinitis. Once the level of uveitic involvement has been determined and the presence of retinal necrosis identified, the next challenge is to narrow down the differential diagnosis. This is where a solid case history review becomes important. I find myself rechecking the patient's review of symptoms and asking additional questions about his or her health status for other possible clues. For example, I review previous notes for mention of herpetic corneal disease, including the presence of ghost dendrites, history of shingles outbreaks, or other signs of preceding viral infection, such as a cold sore. Because toxoplasmosis causes the vast majority of infectious retinitis, one should check for lymphadenopathy or a history of fever, malaise, ingesting undercooked or raw food, or a feline presence in the household. I also ask about other signs of skin involvement, such as erythema migrans or neurological changes for possible Lyme disease. Any history of a compromised immune system, as in HIV or use of chemotherapeutic agents, may lead to suspicion of CMV retinitis or porn. A history of intravenous drug use or pulmonary disease could lead to a suspicion of fungal infection. Asking about recent travel to countries which TB is endemic may be useful if one suspects TB infection. Some clinical presentations of retinal infections are essentially clinical. For example, inocular toxoplasmosis, the presence of focal necrotizing retinochoroiditis with an adjacent or distant retinochoroidal scar, or headlight in the fog, is a key sign. However, appropriate laboratory studies may be necessary to confirm the diagnosis and rule out other disease entities. Consider ordering a complete blood count with differential, fluorescent treponemal antibody absorption, and rapid plasma reagent tests, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, toxoplasmosis titers, toxocara titer, purified protein derivative, and chest radiograph to rule out other etiologies. If the patient could be immunocompromised, such as in CMV or porn, consider HIV testing. For suspected Lyme disease, a Lyme immunofluorescent assay or enzyme-linked immunoabsorbent assay is appropriate. Polymerized chain reaction techniques are available for herpes simplex, varicella zoster, and other pathogens. With the wide variety of possible infectious etiologies and masqueraders, knowing the presentations of common culprits is crucial to narrowing down the differentials and initiating treatment in a timely manner. In many instances of infectious retinitis, depending on the entity involved, management may require immediate referral to a retinal specialist, and perhaps even co-management with an infectious disease specialist. Even with prompt diagnosis, an appropriate referral, in many cases, infectious retinitis can result in devastating outcomes. In the event of significant vision loss, referral of the patient to a low vision service provider is warranted. 
As you just heard, patients can end up with significant vision loss even after their astute OD detects infectious keratitis early. With AMD, early detection and prompt treatment can lead to better outcomes. Next up, Damon Durker of Eye Surgeons of Indiana provides some expert guidance on recognizing AMD early and having a plan of action ready. Age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the leading cause of adult blindness in the Western world. An estimated 14 million Americans have AMD, and this number is projected to sharply increase in the coming decades due to the aging baby boomer population. Although there is no cure for AMD, early detection, patient education, and the use of risk reduction strategies as well as early intervention with anti-VEGF drugs once neovascular disease is confirmed can lead to better outcomes. A 2017 study found that optometrists and ophthalmologists miss signs of early to moderate AMD at least 25% of the time, indicating an unmet need in clinician education. This article provides a brief overview of signs and symptoms to be on the lookout for, as well as what to do when you detect them. Age and family history are the most important risk factors for AMD. People over the age of 75 have signs of AMD. And individuals who have a parent or sibling with AMD have approximately a three-fold increased risk of developing the disease. Among modifiable risk factors, smoking is the most critical. A history of smoking increases the risk of AMD development and progression. The odds increase with the amount an individual has smoked. Other risk factors include hypertension, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and low macular pigment density. We think of classic AMD symptoms as metamorphopsia and central vision loss, but these are actually symptoms of advanced disease. In early AMD, the most common symptom is poor night vision. Even in early stages, AMD causes profound defects in rod-mediated dark adaptation. Although night vision problems can be related to normal aging and cataracts, be suspicious of AMD in patients who have poor night vision not explained by clinical examination. All patients with AMD need a plan of action. We can provide the best advice to patients with AMD if we stratify them into categories based on structure and function. Fundus photography remains the gold standard for diagnosing and staging non-exudative AMD. In 2013, the Beckman Initiative for Macular Research published a classification system to assist eye care providers in identifying AMD-related structural changes. OCT is also valuable in identifying AMD at early stages. Drusen, a hallmark of AMD, are identified on OCT as discrete elevations of the RPE layer at the level of Brooks membrane. Drusen that form above the RPE are known as reticular pseudodrusen and are a more ominous sign. Patients with this type of drusen are much more likely to progress to advanced disease. Until recently, we have not had an adequate tool for measuring AMD function in early disease. Vision is preserved until advanced stages of AMD and contrast sensitivity and color vision testing have limited diagnostic accuracy. As the disease progresses, dark adaptation can worsen, 
even though fundus findings and acuity may remain unchanged. Researchers have shown that impaired dark adaptation precedes the development of visible drusen by at least three years. Dark adaptation testing is a tool we can use to detect AMD before it can be seen clinically. A new diagnosis, subclinical AMD, has been proposed, and I believe that identifying patients at this stage can improve outcomes further. The ADAPTX rapid diagnostic test can be used to confirm AMD in just a few minutes with 90% sensitivity and specificity. An extended test protocol allows practitioners to monitor patients for disease progression, akin to monitoring glaucoma with visual field testing. Once we have identified a patient with AMD, we need to educate that patient properly and provide an evidence-based plan for reducing the risk of progression. First, discuss your findings with the patient in direct, easy-to-understand terms. No one wants to hear that he or she has AMD, but patients will be grateful when they understand that their prognosis is better with early detection. Address smoking as appropriate. I generally refer patients to their primary care physicians for specific smoking cessation strategies. It's also important to discuss lifestyle management, including weight control and regular exercise. Emphasize the importance of diet and nutrition. I review the need to incorporate plenty of fruits and vegetables into the diet every day. Green leafy vegetables such as spinach, kale, and collard greens are especially important. I encourage omega-3 fatty acid supplements if patients are not eating several servings of healthy fish such as salmon and tuna on a weekly basis. An eye-specific supplement containing the macular carotenoids, which include lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin, should be considered for everyone. There are no known contraindications to carotenoid formulations. These supplements have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties and patients with early AMD can actually improve their contrast sensitivity and visual performance with sustained use. Don't forget to provide patients with written instructions detailing your recommendations and emphasize the need to contact your office urgently if they detect any vision changes. Schedule a follow-up in 6 to 12 months to monitor for progression. I typically rely on dark adaptation testing, OCT, and fundus photography as indicated for following patients with early disease. All the recommendations we have discussed uh, also apply for patients with intermediate AMD. A few important additions should be considered. For one, monitor patients more frequently, generally every four to six months. Also, ob obtain OCT and OCT and angiography if available at every visit, regardless of changes in symptoms or vision. Patients with intermediate AMD have up to a 50% risk of progressing to advanced disease over the next five years. Consider recommending an ARIDS-2-based supplement, but be cautious with the amount of zinc it contains. A large number of products using the ARIDS-2 name are available, and the amount of zinc they contain varies widely. Although this topic is controversial, I order genetic testing for patients with intermediate AMD to determine whether zinc supplementation is appropriate. An alternative approach to consider is prescribing a supplement containing 25 milligrams of zinc instead of 80 milligrams, as ARIDS-2 showed that no significant additional risk reduction was found in patients taking the higher dose. 
consider prescribing a home monitoring system in patients with intermediate AMD. It takes our patients roughly three minutes to perform and possible disease progression triggers an alert to my office so we can bring the patient in for reevaluation. In the HOME study by the ARIDS2 group, patients using 4C HOME had a better chance of having good vision at the time of progression to neovascular AMD compared to those using an AMSA grid. Patients with geographic atrophy or advanced disease should be monitored in a similar manner to those with intermediate disease. There is no FDA-approved treatment for geographic atrophy at this time. Any suspicion of neovascular disease necessitates referral to an ophthalmologist preferably a retina specialist, within a few days to a week for consideration of treatment with anti-VEGF therapy. Be on the lookout for AMD in all of your patients over age 50, particularly if they complain of poor night vision. Order appropriate tests to aid in making a confident diagnosis. Have a direct conversation with your patients and develop a plan of action to slow down the disease. Early detection can help reduce the risk of blindness for millions of Americans with AMD. There's no cure for AMD, but knowing the best treatment regimen for each stage of the disease can prevent patients from losing their vision completely, and that's good news. To continue lifting the mood, let's move on to our next article by Robert Chu of iWorks Group in Fort Worth, Texas, and Marianne Murphy of Front Range Eye Associates in Broomfield, Colorado. Here, Dr. Chu explain how coordinating vision and medical insurance benefits is sound business practice. Many patients in the United States have dual insurance coverage for eye care. In fact, 5 out of 10 patients are covered under a vision plan, while 7 out of 10 are covered under medical insurance. Some other medical specialties are limited to billing for office visits, but the practice of modern optometry provides a powerful opportunity to take an initial patient encounter for vision care, glasses, or contact lenses and create additional future encounters, thereby maximizing the patient's lifetime engagement with your practice. Let's say you have a patient in your chair for a vision exam for glasses or contact lenses, and upon performing the ocular health examination, you detect a medical eye condition. Rather than pushing the eject button and referring the patient, optometrists need to embrace our broad scope of practice, dependent on locale, that allows us to offer our patients a full continuum of care. Offering that full continuum requires us to make some decisions. Do we flip the initial vision encounter to a medical encounter for the higher reimbursement and address the patient's medical needs first? This option requires that the patient be educated on his or her medical insurance coverage, deductibles, and copays, which may differ from what he or she had initially expected. The other option is to proceed with the vision examination to produce a prescription so that the patient can purchase glasses or contact lenses that same day, then educate him or her on the need for additional testing and schedule a follow-up visit for a problem-focused battery of tests. Modern optometrists choose between these options many times every day. We challenge you to consider this an opportunity to maximize each patient encounter. How encounters are maximized is a matter of doctor preference and office protocol. 
by clearly understanding the nuances of coordinating benefits and leveraging internal referrals, you can unlock the path to subsequent encounters to provide comprehensive eye health and vision care for patients, while also maximizing your practice's performance. As owners of our own medically-oriented optometry practices, we are committed to offering a full continuum of care to our patients, up to and including ophthalmology and in-house surgical services. However, our approaches differ. Dr. Murphy's model is to almost always focus on medical first. She uses the initial patient encounter to address medical needs and build a higher reimbursing medical insurance, while also coordinating benefits with the patient's vision plan. Note, all vision plans are not created equal. For example, VSP Vision Care allows and actually promotes simultaneous billing of both the patient's vision plan and medical insurance for different components on the same encounter. Specifically, coordination of benefits allows the billing of the office visit and any procedures performed to medical insurance, while VSP is separately billed for the refraction, up to an allowable amount and material benefits. Under another scenario, if all of the required components of a 92014 encounter, uh, medical evaluation, comprehensive established patient, are performed, Dr. Murphy's office bills medical insurance with both the medical diagnosis and the refractive diagnosis. If the patient still has a deductible at the time of the encounter, the office bills VSP, uh, see the specifics in VSP's provider reference manual, and applies the payment towards the medical insurance deductible or copay, then balance bills the patient for the remainder of the deductible up to the cost of services rendered. A 50-year-old patient covered by a VSP plan comes in to update his glasses. The comprehensive examination reveals a prescription change, along with dry eyes, mild cataracts, with glare, ptosis, and elevated intraocular pressures. A family history of glaucoma was noted in the patient's history. The patient's treatment plan would consist of the following steps. Prescribe new glasses, which are covered by VSP's vision plan and overages. Have the patient return to the clinic for a dry eye workup and temporary punctal plugs, both of which are billed to medical insurance. Refer the patient to a cataract surgeon for evaluation and schedule the appointment at this visit. The patient qualifies for cataract surgery and proceeds with surgery. The patient's prescription changes after cataract surgery. Glasses remake is covered by the vision plan at no charge to the patient. Refer the patient to an oculoplastic surgeon for blepharoplasty after cataract surgery. Because the patient is a glaucoma suspect, he is instructed to return to the clinic for a glaucoma workup at the same visit as his dry eye workup. This workup is also billed to medical insurance. Although we differ in our initial sequencing for handling our patient's eye care needs, we agree that if done properly, coordinating a patient's benefits can unlock a powerful tool for helping them to obtain and afford the eye care they need. The key is the initial vision encounter because it can lead to a multitude of subsequent appropriate encounters and referrals to solve the patient's eye care needs. Properly and efficiently coordinating vision care and vent medical eye care 
is what sets modern ODs apart from our predecessors. I used the initial vision examination visit to produce a prescription and capture the glasses and contact lens material sales. Although I try to maintain this visit as a vision exam billed to the vision insurance plan, this consultation also more importantly serves as a springboard for the doctor and the patient to work together on a long-range treatment plan, including subsequent visits and referrals to other doctors within the practice who specialize in areas of expertise to address the patient's comprehensive eye care needs. All subsequent visits are then billed to medical insurance. Both vision plans and medical insurance coverage operate in highly fluid environments. With shifting demographics and changing government regulations, it's always important to be looking ahead. Some Medicare supplemental plans are now offering vision coverage, and some vision plans have developed new material-only benefits to accompany office eye care visits covered by Medicare. Under these plans, the vision plan connects Medicare patients to our practices. If a medical diagnosis exists, the encounter can be billed to Medicare and the materials can still be billed to the vision plan. Medicare patients also tend to present with other downstream medical eye needs. Based on industry trends such as these, we believe that there will be a str stronger synergies between vision plans and medical insurance plans in the future. Learning how to coordinate benefits will help to differentiate top doctors in fully optimized practices from the rest of the pack. Once you experience the growth that coordinating vision and medical insurance can bring, you will know you did the right thing for your patients and for your practice. In the final article in this episode, Mark Blumenstein of Schwartz Laser Eye Center in Arizona is a voice of reason with his piece from the collaborative eye section on putting your trust in the process and acting in the best interest of patients. In A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens wrote, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Although he wrote that in the 1900s, he could very well have been talking about the current digital age. So much information is so easily accessible online that it's a blessing and a curse all at the same time. Anyone can look up symptoms, treatments, etc. And if you look long enough, you're bound to find the answer you want to hear. We clinicians may like to believe that our patients listen to us, but we know that this is rarely the case when Dr. Google or Dr. Bing can be reached quickly and without a fee. Frankly, I have not seen a more insidious panoply of viewpoints about a medical procedure on the internet than I have with regard to refractive laser surgery. LASIK has become the one name in our patients' lexicons for almost every refractive surgical procedure. Patients don't differentiate among photorefractive surgery, phacic IOLs, small incision lenticular extraction, or for that matter, cataract surgery or dysfunctional lens replacement. It's always about the LASIK. This is in no small part due to marketing that was pervasive in the late 1990s and to a great extent to the fact that LASIK is a truly formidable procedure that is capable of correcting a wide spectrum of refractive error. Arguably, LASIK, with its wavefront correcting capabilities and minimal invasiveness, is one of the safest and most efficacious procedures available to our patients. Yet, 
how many of them actually know the benefits of this modern miracle that has captured the world's attention for almost three decades? Why are we not talking more about refractive surgery? We might cite a number of reasons, but each seems unconvincing. We can't blame the economy. Think about the money your patients spend on cool sculpting and the phones they upgrade every year. Some ODs may not bring up refractive surgery with patients because they believe that contact lenses have gotten so much better. Again, check yourself. Yes, we have a greater array of lenses, and we acknowledge that contact lens intolerance is most likely a symptom of dry eye, but patients still want to declutter themselves from those plastic corneal covers. Maybe you argue that people love their glasses now more than ever. Nerdy chic is the new LASIK. I would argue that it is none of the above. Rather, I feel that we are in a Mobius loop of complacency in the lanes. We don't talk about refractive surgery, patients don't inquire about it, so we don't talk about it, and thus they don't ask. We need to stop the insanity and break this cycle. Patients need to know about refractive surgery. It's important for us, as practitioners of eye care, to advocate for the refractive options of our patients. Think about how we treat presbyopic patients. Do most of us offer executive bifocals to the silver tsunami that is cresting on our office shores? No. We talk about how multifocal contact lenses and progressive lenses can help them function in the presbyopia-challenged time in which we are living. But I can attest that refractive surgery, specifically LASIK, is a guaranteed patient pleaser. And what better way to feel comfortable telling patients we have another great option than letting them hear it from other patients, directly or indirectly. One way to let other patients do the talking about LASIK is to introduce patients to the FDA's patient-reported outcomes with laser in situ keratomalusis studies. These studies assessed patients' experiences with LASIK by means of a questionnaire. PRAL-1 enrolled 262 active duty service personnel, and PRAL-2 enrolled 312 civilian patients from five centers across the country. In the studies, patients answered 68 questions designed to validate their experience with vision after LASIK. The PRAL questionnaire, which is now available on the FDA website for all to use, ensured consistent collection of the patient's experiences of visual and dry eye symptoms, their satisfaction after LASIK, their overall satisfaction with vision, and their daily functioning and well-being. These were real-life experiences. This comprehensive look at patient experiences can be a spark to share with your patients. You can point out that in these studies, both groups reported high satisfaction rates, between 96% and 99%. A small but significant subset of these patients those without symptoms before LASIK experience new visual symptoms such as glare, halos, starbursts, or mild, moderate, or severe dry eye symptoms at three months after surgery. Overall, however, the prevalence of visual symptoms and dry eye decreased after LASIK and improved over time. The most important takeaway from PRAL is that few patients reported that their symptoms affected their daily activities or well-being. The results of the PRAL studies are great conversation starters with patients regarding their refractive options, regardless of their refractive status.
Simply start by asking patients if they are interested in liberating themselves from glasses or contact lenses. Although LASIK has the ability to correct the vast majority of refractive errors, there are many other options for aging patients who are interested in refractive surgical correction, including cataract surgery or refractive lens exchange. If you are confident about which procedure is best for a particular patient, then by all means, share your recommendation with him or her. But rather than trying to tailor a specific procedure for each patient, why not refer patients whose interest has been sparked in refractive surgery and let the surgical center handle that decision? The bottom line is, it's okay to recommend refractive surgery to your patients. With a good co-managing surgeon partner, you will see these patients again for routine eye care for the rest of their happy lives. Act in the best interest of your patients and they'll thank you for it when they return to your practice. That's a wrap on yet another episode of The Mod Pod. We hope you've enjoyed listening to select articles from our September issue as read by the authors themselves. You'll find a digital version of each issue on modernod.com, so be sure to visit and learn more about detecting systemic diseases and retinal disorders, corneal dystrophies, cost-effectiveness analysis, and more from this issue. Finally, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Mod Optometry, on Facebook at Mod Optom, and on LinkedIn at Modern Optometry.